I'm willing to bet that if you were to reflect on your life and think about the most transformative moments, the most powerful situations that have really caused you to stop and reflect and maybe even shift something in your life were relational in nature, meaning they didn't just happen in isolation, but there were people there, or at least a person, and that there was something about the interaction with that person that marked you, something that really brought something to the surface for you in a new way and shifted something on a deeper level. Beyond just thinking differently or behaving differently, but something that shifted the way that you want to show up in the world. I'm also willing to bet that the most significant moments of pain, suffering, struggle have also been relational. That there have been messages that you've internalized based on interactions, maybe early on in your family life, that were later reinforced by additional painful interactions that have gone deep inside and started to form patterns of survival for you. And by that I mean you've developed a way of being in relationship with others that to some extent works. You're able to sort of get your basic needs met, but there's also this sense that this isn't really thriving or flourishing. There could be more to life than just the way that I'm living. But at the same time, you also feel somewhat protected or safer if you hold part of yourself back, or maybe for others it's overpowering others rather than holding something back. It's potentially a way of hiding or a way of keeping others at a distance. We all do this. None of us come into this world and are free of the harm that comes from just being in this world. From the moment we're born, we are relational creatures. We learn who we are in the context of relationship. Even before we have developed the ability to speak or even have cognitive thoughts or anything like that, we are relational. We learn in a context of relationship. We develop a sense of self in the context of relationship. We learn from those around us, initially from our caregivers, and then as life goes on through our peer group and through cultural norms and all sorts of other things that we are in relationship to, none of us exist in isolation. Our sense of self isn't an isolated thing, but rather is a mix of every significant relational encounter we have ever had. I believe this deep in my bones, which is why I'm really excited to bring you this conversation with Dr. Roy Barsness, whose teaching has really influenced my own mind around why the therapeutic relationship is healing and transformative. Roy is a psychologist who's been practicing for over 25 years. He's an author and a professor of psychology at the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. Roy is the founder of the Relationally Focused Psychodynamic Therapy post-grad program, which I teach in, and Roy has really become a mentor and friend over these last couple of years. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Roy. You're listening to Why in the World, a podcast fueled by curiosity with deep dive conversations about why we show up in the world the way we do. I'm your host, psychotherapist, Brian Nixon. 
<laughs> All right, we'll start. Thanks for being on. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So as we were just talking before we hit record, I was saying like the podcast is called Why in the World? Um, and that was in part inspired by you coming to Grand Rapids several years ago and showing that video. Um, I can't remember what the video was now. Do you it's remember? Called why. Oh, just called Why. And it was about knowing your why and um, living from that place. Um, and for me, it was just this, it kind of sunk in for me. And I, you know, I have a practice with multiple therapists in multiple locations. And there was a moment when one of the therapists um, asked me, what would we do if insurance stopped billing or stopped paying? And this little bit of fear came up in me of like, oh, we got to figure this out and we got to figure out what our game plan would be if, if it didn't, if we can't bill anymore. Um, but then this like something sunk in a little deeper for me. It was this kind of moment of clarity. Um, and I remember looking at her and just saying, it wouldn't matter. Um, and the reason it wouldn't matter was because this practice is the form that my why is showing up through right now. It's not my actual why. Mm -hmm. um, and it was really clear to me that there would be a lot to grieve. It would be really, you know, pretty profoundly sad and devastating to have to close down a practice and a business that I've worked really hard to build in a very intentional way. But even the loss of that wouldn't be the loss of my why. And so that, that became very clear. Um, so, yeah, so this is the Why in the World podcast that kind of had a seed planted back then. Um, so it's really fun for me to have you on and have this conversation and see where it goes. I was thinking on the plane ride here because we're in your office in Seattle. Um, and on the plane ride today, just thinking about where did I want to start this conversation with you? And it made me think of, like, where did you and I start? Yeah. Um, and so it took me back to being, you know, a new grad student in 2004 and sitting in your interpersonal foundations class. And it didn't take me long to realize like something about you was different. Um, and I didn't quite know what it was, but I remember being this, this new grad student in a master's program for counseling and thinking, Oh, we need to take these classes and figure out, you know, what tools and techniques we're going to need to learn and all of this. And very shortly, into your class it was like we're not talking about tools and techniques we're talking about something different we're talking about presence um, and being and how to not do something with with our clients but how to be a different type of presence with them um, and that's something about that presence is transformative um, and of course i remember reading martin buber's i and thou as assigned reading in your class and I remember um, just something about that book, like most of it probably went way over my head at that time, but there was something that just felt deeply true about what happens in an authentic encounter with one another, um, the presence that's there and that something different shows up in that space. And then, yeah, so now fast forward to 2020 and we're working together in the relationally focused psychodynamic therapy program the continuing ed program for therapists 
and one thing I've heard you say a lot since we've been working on this is sort of this idea around authenticity being sort of the thing that that wins the day. Um, it's not about exclusively about empathy and unconditional positive regard, and those things are great, but they aren't always present. And so I would love to hear you talk a little bit about that, like your own journey towards that way of being in the world, towards valuing that as a, as a therapist, um, and then um, just how you've sort of embodied that as a professor and as a therapist and as a supervisor, all the different roles that you embody, there is a there is an authenticity to you. And so mm. I'd love to hear some of the, the backstory of that. Like, how did that, that fire get lit in you? Mm. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> for your listeners, uh, the, um, the video that they might, we, we should cite is Michael Jr. He's okay. a comedian. Uh, and you can just go to YouTube and put in Y or Michael Jr. And if they're interested, they'll they can also be inspired. <laughs> Great. Yeah, I can definitely link to that. Yeah. Um, oh, uh, so many thoughts come to my mind. One uh, about why I think for myself as a kid, I was so curious about, well, first of all, why I w- was born into the um, uh, community I was born into. And my mind was just so active and busy. And I was always trying to figure out people and my brother and my mother and my father and how everything functioned. So yeah. I, I was just always f- trying to figure out relational stuff, it mm-hmm. seemed, uh, and was pretty pretty interested in all that. And so I knew that I wanted to be in that kind of field, so went on to college to become those, kind of to address that interest. Um, but like you and most people who enter this field, it's, we enter it thinking we're going to do something to the patient, or we're going to provide something, we're going to do something. Um, but right away, my first job out of college was actually as a uh, social worker on a Native American, Native American Indian reservation. And um, one of the stories that emerged from there was I worked with this family and they had um, four children. It was very, very disrupted family. Uh, the father was completely absent. The mother uh, suffered from severe alcoholism. The children, uh, all under age 10, were abandoned most of the time, and I would be called out to, to help out. And one time I got a call from the, the police saying that they had, these three children had done um, 10 break and enters the night before and they were sitting in juvenile cells waiting for me to come and do something with them. So that's a very sad story, but as I went to pick them up, I'd become very acquaint- well acquainted and loving these children, and they, we, we had a connection. We're driving home, and, and the little girl Brenda says to me, she says, you know, Roy, if you'd come see me more often, I'd be better. Hmm. And something went deep inside of me that day that I think that she was right, that uh, any of my provisions for her, uh, whether I found her a, a bed for that night or whatever, was was one thing that had to be done. But what she was really telling me at eight years old is, I need you <laughs> in my life, present in my life, in some sort of way, in order for me to be to be well. So I fast forward to then when I was in graduate school, my very first patient, <clears throat> um, you can imagine, as 
most therapists, we try everything under the sun on our first patient. Absolutely. And so whatever we're learning in <laughs> class that day, they get it. And so I was doing for all my antics. Worse. What's that? For better or worse. For better or for worse. And so she was my first patient, and I was applying this, thus, and so. And one day I brought in a big piece of paper and markers and all that, and I thought the way I'm going to get to this woman's story is through the family genogram where, you know, you draw pictures of the family and where the disconnections are and all that sort of thing. It's a very useful technique. It's a very useful technique and, and certainly <laughs> one that we don't want to throw away. But she taught me something that moment too. She um, said, put that away. Hmm. And when you're ready to hear my story, I will tell you. So I knew then that my presence, that somehow or another, the interconnectedness between another human being is where change is going to take place. Mm. Fortunately, at the same time, I was learning about Martin Buber, as you said, and learning that genuine, through genuine encounter is where um, change takes place and transformation takes place. And so my, let's see if I can answer the why question, I do this work because um, it, uh, let's see if I can answer that why. Let me think, why do I do this? It's life-giving for one thing mm -hmm. to me, but uh, the why of the work has changed from providing a, a resource to being a resource. Uh, mm. that, so why I work the way that I do is that I came to see that change takes place through the genuine encounter between a patient and a therapist. And this, as you, as you know, has uh, grown within uh, the world of psychology too, where APA this year, after a 30-year research project and uh, task force on what does create change in psychotherapy, is um, the regardless of modality, it is the quality of the relationship between the therapist and the patient. Mm -hmm. Now, what you're, when you talk about RFPT, so that sounds like, oh, that's easy. I just need to show up, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what we know is that showing up is probably one of the hardest things we can do. Absolutely. That we are fairly defended people. We are uh, pretty scared of conflict. Mm -hmm. And we are, uh, we often offer empathic comments that are not really true right they are we're trying to be kind or we're trying to be nice but we're not uh, off, often offering the actual genuine experience that we're having <clears throat> right i think of a <clears throat> i'm sure the new yorker has some uh cartoon mm -hmm. with the <clears throat> analyst sitting behind the patient who's on the couch and the patient is the most boring patient in the world mm. and so in the in the therapist's mind he's going god this patient is so boring i want to fall asleep and the, you know the little cloud behind the the patient or the therapist's mind uh i can't wait till this hour is over but then what he's saying to his patient is yes i wonder how you're feeling about that Hmm. And it's just such a disconnect from yeah. his experience of the patient to what the patient gets to actually hear. And yet what Buber gets at and what relationally uh, focused therapy is trying to address is that it's the, in the authentic experience and the exchange of that where the patient and the therapist actually can get into what's, what I would call the work, the grid of the work. Hmm. But when you get into that, let's say with that same cartoon, 
If the therapist begins to try and, and articulate his true experience of the patient, there is now going to be a new tension, possibly even conflict, and a lot more of the therapist's own life gets stirred up. Right. And so it's like, I think therapists are pretty reluctant to saying, I don't know if I want to do that kind of work. Right. And yet I've come to see that when I have entered into that and I've supervised people into that kind of experience, that everything begins to shift for everybody. It becomes transformative and life-giving and, and um, the patient actually gets, gets well, as does the therapist actually. Hmm. Like a mutual healing in a way. I would say. Yeah. Well, and there's such an, a way that as therapists we can hide behind empathy and, and hide behind sort of unconditional positive regard or, or whatever other tool or technique that's being used. Um, you know, I certainly know it's been true at times for me as a therapist where um, I might be feeling deeply bored or, mm-hmm. or even to the point of like feeling sleepy. Mm-hmm. Um, I had one, one client in particular who for several years, you know, every week we would meet and my energy would be fine before our meeting and it would take a huge dip during our meeting, and then it would bounce back after our meeting. And I never quite figured out what that was, what was being enacted in that, what mm-hmm. was being repeated. I don't, I'm not, to this day, it sort of haunts me. Like, mm-hmm. um, But what I'm aware of is I was really good at sort of saying the right things or, you know, expressing and I wouldn't have thought it was, you know, insincere curiosity mm-hmm. or whatever. Right. You know, I tried to find things that would um, enliven the conversation instead of actually talking about the fact that there was no life in the conversation. Right. Um, and so, yeah, what you're saying takes me to that particular case. Yeah. Uh, and that takes me to um, a couple of places. One... Um, don't want to throw empathy under the bus necessarily, but because I generally think that people who are in this field are empathic, sure, and that we are we are trying to feel the patient's story. Mm-hmm. Um, but where, where I'll go ahead and borrow Buber again is on the difference between uh, empathy is often then about affirming. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a problem with affirmation, and this is why Buber's idea of confirmation is so powerful. The problem with affirmation is that we can get caught up on sort of supporting the patient in all of their endeavors. Right. Um, and uh, one of those places of, of danger even is supporting them in, in uh, blame of their past or blaming of this or blaming of that rather than having them to rework the past or to rethink the past. Mm-hmm. But if we are, in, yes, your father was this way, yes, your mother was this way, yes, you were this, that yes, this happened to you, we don't let the patient work that. They become affirmed and supported, but they sometimes can, can be uh, affirmed and supported in their, um, uh, for De- lack of a better word, their pathology or their... Their defenses their and defenses. survival strategies. Exactly, exactly. And so the idea of confirmation to me that Buber uses in contrast to affirmation is that we're looking for the true, the 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 real, the something that's more honest and more genuine Mm -hmm. and more authentic about the person, right? Uh, Rather than their behaviors or defenses, we're we're wondering out loud with them: 
is this really you? Is, is this really the way it is? Uh, helping them uh, work, work it differently in that way. And your sleepy patient reminds me of, of one of mine where this, where this idea also came to play, where I was seeing this man twice a week, and he was truly, he was far more boring than your patient. I'm, I know that already, <laughs> <laughs> because I think he was the most boring person in the world. But I would nod, I would nod every twice a week, every session. I would ask curious questions, trying to figure things out. I did get part, I got his story, I got where he came from, a home of, of quite severe neglect, mm-hmm. of not really being seen or recognized or valued. So I think he kept coming back because there was something about my effort towards him of yeah. trying to get his story. But it was really hard. And um, he would come in every session and said, so what, do, what did we talk about last session? And I would have no memory at all. Mm-hmm. Like it had, it had left me even before he left the room. And I would say, I don't know, what do you remember, et cetera. That, Which is sort of a, a therapist tr- strategy to try to remember for ourselves with, by seeing if they remember. Exactly, right, right. It's, kind of a cheat thing. Okay, I guess we're putting our cards on the table here <laughs> in this recording. So. Yeah. And, and, but, and it gets into that inauthenticity and, uh, of ourselves, right? Right. Through trying to be empathic, but really trying to throw the ball to the other side because we don't, we don't want it or we don't have it. One day he came in and um, he said, so what did we talk? I said, you know, I don't remember and neither do you. And I'm thinking that both of us are caught up in thinking something about your life that it, we must not think anything about it is worth remembering. Hmm. Um, and that really broke us into a relationship because it resonated with him. It, it made sense. And he, I, he felt it. And he felt it. I felt it. And I felt relieved that I could say what had, what I, what had been needing to be said, I would say now. And also what I wanted to say for a long time, but was pretending it didn't exist and not saying it. And what that was able to help us begin to see is that he never felt like he had a life worth living. He had not been seen or recognized in his home. He didn't even expect that I would see him. So at that moment, he felt seen, hmm. right? For the, uh, I don't know, for the first time, but you know, for- A in, significant time. A significant time. And that we then had, it opened up our work then to begin to, to see why this man or how this man was living a life of, of not being seen or valued uh, in terms of his relationships with others, his lack of relatedness, his chosen career, all that sort of thing. And it opened, an, opened him up to live, I would say, more alive and vital. And some of the things he began to do after that were very life-giving to him. And I was excited to hear about and those kinds of things. Um, and so that, again, I think, is that idea of, of bringing ourselves into the work in such a way that risks a lot, risks my own vulnerability, the potential of conflict, the tension, and also risks the possibility of resonance as we try and sort out uh, something that's really happening instead of what we're pretending is not happening. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's not just uh, that the client or the patient is the boring one. It's right. that there's a presence of boredom somewhere between us. Nice. 
Yes, absolutely. Um, I love that you said that because so often you'll hear case studies presented about what the patient is doing yeah, and what, and that they're the boring one or they're the borderline one or the narcissistic one. And I pretty much don't believe that stuff. I, I, I like what you said. It's where we have a narcissistic or borderline mm-hmm. or a boring enactment, if you will, yeah. that somehow or another we have co-created the very story of the person's life now in the in-between. Mm. And so it's not that the patient is, it's like we are. Right. Yeah. And, and that creates such conflict in us as therapists because we're trying to live into that gold standard or not be the same as everything else they've always experienced. We're trying to be the one that's doing it right in their right. life. And so to feel some of those harder feelings when we're sitting with, with a client, yeah. you know, something's going on there. But if we're so committed to just being this gold standard therapist, we're going to split that off in ourselves. And then it's just going to keep repeating over and over and over. Yep. Yep. And, um, you know, you've read some of my case studies or heard some of the case studies presented where um, it'd be easy to say that the patient was the disturbed one. Um, and, and, and uh, which I think we do. And what you hear me working on in my cases is how have we become disturbed? Mm-hmm. Um, and when we, when I see that, like, for example, I'm thinking of a borderline patient that's, you know, in the book, um, that I wrote is um, we talk about splitting in borderlines, right? Mm-hmm. Well, good God, the therapist who happened to be me was splitting all over the place, hmm. right? Yep. And creating all sorts of conflict for my borderline patient because I was acting borderline myself. Hmm. And it was only when it dawned upon me that, my, my, that we were now caught up in a borderline enactment, if you will, that we were able then to begin to um, open that up because I was no longer splitting. At least one person in the party was not splitting by bringing in the split and the uh, and the story as it was unfolding to give the patient then capacity to begin to reflect upon it. Yeah, I love that. That it takes the label off of the patient and and even off of the therapist in mm-hmm. a way and puts mm-hmm. it really in the middle. Like yep. it's not that this is a borderline patient or that this is a, I don't know, whatever the label is. It's, right. it, I love that, that that's, it's something sort of mutually created, mm-hmm. but it's also something mutually created that's repeating something. Yes. Yeah. You see, I think everybody who comes to see us, it's trying like if everything is relational, which I'd be pretty hard, it'd be hard for anybody to convince me it's not, <laughs> um, that <clears throat> then when somebody comes to see us, they're, they're, they're looking for a new relationship. Or no, they're not looking for it. They, we are now going to have a new relationship, right? Mm-hmm. And so everything that's in that person's past that is needing to be thought through and worked through it's going to come into relationship with me. And to ignore that um, and to simply try and talk to the patient about their life and their story or their behavior or their past um, gives them some insight into it. But they're actually pushing us to be a participant in it. Hmm. And when we 
when we finally release ourselves, if you will, to the opportunity, I would say, of being a part of the patient's story, which um, then the patient has something right directly in front of them now that they get to work with hmm. emotionally and experientially rather than just cognitively. Yeah. Well, that's, that's that the, like the idea of enactment is sort of the, the underlying thing of that is that that's an unconscious process initially. Right. Or mostly unconscious. Right. Maybe right. there is a, a partial consciousness that we have around it and, and then we try to move away from it and right. it gets worse or, right. or whatever. And it makes me think of something that, like I often think about, is like the unconscious is so good at recreating the original yeah. wounding scenario right. that often the same outcome happens and it ends up reinforcing what the wound is and reinforcing what the defenses are and reinforcing yeah. whatever those survival strategies are that aren't working. Yeah. Um, and there's something really like disturbing about that but mm -hmm. there's also something really hopeful about that like right. um, just that thought that the unconscious is in a way trying to move us forward it is mm -hmm. trying to give us new opportunities to work these things out and I think you know I, I certainly agree with like everything feels relational right um, that it's it's within the context of the therapeutic relationship where there's a safe enough container hopefully mm -hmm. uh, that 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 repetition that's being constructed unconsciously often from the very first communication right will have an opportunity to come into consciousness and be worked through yeah um, you see and i think um the unconscious to become conscious historically from a freudian perspective was you know it would be interpreted kind of thing mm -hmm. but we're we as a therapist are often caught unawares as we become, because we get pulled into the stage mm -hmm. of, of the other person's drama. And I can't, I can't sit in the audience. I'm literally pulled out, called out mm -hmm. um, to be a participant. And it often will happen unexpectedly. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and there's such a richness in that uh, if you're not afraid of it. Yeah. But often when we get caught, we get defensive. And we put it upon the patient, or we, um, as you and I talked more recently, um, we if the patient doesn't want to play with it, then we just leave it, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> yeah, we bring it up and then quickly drop it if right. they don't yeah. have some buy-in. Yeah, as opposed to, wait a minute, you called me up here on stage. I have a role here. Mm -hmm. What is my role? Oh, I don't want to play that. Mm -hmm. Oh, man, I don't want to be you know, that person in your history. I don't want to be a, a new new participant in trying to work that out. Yeah. But it's what we're called to. And, 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 you know, it's not even intentional. It's so at your, the unconscious emotional level that that happens. Mm -hmm. And that's why we as therapists want to privilege affect over intellect. Mm -hmm. Because drama that's rich and good is pulling at our, at our heart, mm -hmm. not at our head. Right. Um, and so we want to be alert to the affective shifts and changes that are unconsciously occurring between two people. Hmm. How would you, for the listeners who aren't psychotherapists, how would you put language around affect? Like, what do you mean when you say that word? Feeling. I would just start with, you know, everybody feels, right? And I think um, we, we, we 
privilege our minds so much. But research and just our own experiences, we always feel things before we, we think things. Hmm. Our minds get activated to reflect upon. That's what, why our minds are so helpful. But they're there not because they know, but they're there to reflect upon this deep, visceral thing that happens. Um, and so um, that's what I'm getting at with affect is you ask anybody and they might, um, if they meet somebody, they might not feel anything. They might feel deep anger. They might feel deep love. They might, you know, whatever. But the whole draw or the experience towards the other comes from a feeling first. Hmm. And that feels like it, it is sort of the reciprocal of what other therapy modalities are saying. You know, like there are other modes of therapy that would would say it's your thoughts and your behaviors that impact what you feel mm-hmm. um, and you're saying the opposite yeah and and i i am absolutely saying the opposite and i would say if we aligned up a bunch of people and said i don't know gave them some sort of test they would they, almost everybody would say i feel something first hmm. uh bef- well, let me see i wish i could give an example of that I just know that that we're feeling people mm-hmm. that we're you know it's how that's how we were we were, we're bo- it's like we're feeling people in a thinking culture yeah and and that we we are not attending to our feelings but you know you think even as we come into this world that there's no language there's no cognition the baby and the mother have to feel their way towards meaning and towards knowing mm. um and 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 then they feel their way towards language so even at like a really core basic developmental level yeah there's there's feeling and affect and emotion and experience before there's even the brain's capacity to form language exactly Hmm. the baby doesn't come out saying i need to suckle they try they have to find the breast they have to find a way and the mother and the baby have to find a a way to connect around that and sometimes that's a painful process for a mother and a child Mm. um and the the cry is there's a feel it's a cry of feeling it's not a cry of they don't know why they're crying they're not having a thought about it and then crying right Mm. um and so i do think that why we want to work in affect is it is comes from very primitive places that have been ignored Hmm. and trauma when you think about trauma the feeling is so deep the harm and the hurt is so deep and the mind goes to work in many ways to save the to save the person because the feelings are so overwhelming Hmm. but if you're working and i would say all of when you're working with trauma patients or trauma or any of our lives we have to work out of, we got to work out, let's say I'm trying, what I'm trying to say is um, get the language out of the way so that we can have the, the experience of that feeling again hmm. in order to have a new language about it. Yeah, hmm, that's good. It's making me think about your book, The Core Competencies of Relational Psychoanalysis and your chapter on courageous speech um, and that kind of being wrapped in authenticity. And as, as we've been working on this RFPT program, you know, I want to give a shout out to Krista and Clarissa if they're mm-hmm. listening. Um, but as we've developed the program, there, 
like that's the point where almost inevitably we get stuck. Yeah. Like we can have moments of feeling, you know, the case or the the muse as we call it, um, and feeling the affect, feeling the emotion. We can even kind of fumble around with some thoughts about it, but it, it's always at that point of like, how are you going to bring this new felt sense into the work with the with the patient, um, where it's so hard. Yeah, it's it so hard to, and so I would love to hear, like how how would you say you've developed a sense of having that courage um, to know how to speak that into the relational space? I think that uh, I'm, I'm not, I hope a case comes to me quickly here, but the first thing I want to say is one of the, um, the hardest things for a therapist to have to unlearn in order to work relationally is to, that you are the smart one, the advice, the one with the advice and the one who can teach and instruct and coach the person to a better life. Because our language is always either to tell, is generally to tell. So um, even when we try to think about the past, we can we might hear ourselves saying something like, "Well, your father did this, or your mother did this, or your teacher did this, or something like this." Mm-hmm. And I can see why you that this links to that kind of thing, mm-hmm. right? Well, that's instruction. Yeah, and and it's constructed out of your own mind. But in that story, something is actually happening. And it's happening between you and your patient in an experiential, affective way. And so what I'm trying to say is let the instructive part of you go. Hmm. And try and stay with what is my experience of this patient's story. Um, I might, this might be an example. So... <clears throat> Uh, I was supervising someone the other day. So the way that I listen, for example, is like I try to, certain things will hit me in my, generally in my gut. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, sidebar in that for a moment is, in, when I was in earlier in my studies, there was, Erwin um, Singer talked about working out of our viscera. And I just love that word, mm. really, because it got to me. It's like, oh, my viscera. Whatever that is, it's even deeper than my feeling or my gut. It's like my whole body, my whole everything. Hmm. Like, let that happen to you. Hmm. Let, the, let the patient get to you, get inside you. Um, so you can hear that if we're instructive, we've already lost the patient, uh, the, exp- the feeling of the... Uh, I've already taken my feeling and tried to tell a story about it rather than being in the story. So the other day I was listening to this case being presented and the first thing I heard uh, was that the patient was having a lot of problems with boundaries. She said, boundaries, and I always have to take care of my parents and um, I get so tired of that. I don't want to go home. I don't want to be around them, that sort of thing. The session continued and then the therapist said, "Um, I feel really sad about that for you, that that's your situation with your parents. And the patient said, oh, don't, don't feel sad. Don't feel sad for me. Hmm. Uh, and, the, and the therapist says, well, you don't need to take care of me. I'm okay. I, it's okay. So you see, that to me was all instructive, right? Hmm. There was some affect. The patient or the therapist hmm. actually gave the affect. 
But you see what just happened in that is what happened between the therapist and the patient is they already now were in the act enactment. So my response would have been, look at us. You just started taking care of me just as you do with your parents. Hmm. So now you see it brings it to what just happened, what happened in her life just happened here. Yeah. And my comment is, look at us. And that makes sort of that unconscious repetition come up consciously between the two of you. Yes. Well, and it brings the affect between us instead of outside of us. Mm -hmm. Where you're not just talking about her parents, but you're now talking about... What just happened between us. Yeah. Yeah. The in-between. And, and theoretically, we call that the intersubjective space, mm -hmm. where two subjects now are, are placed into the the emotional experiential milieu as opposed to um, object. You're an object to be studied mm. uh, kind of thing. Yeah, I was thinking about that instructive piece. And as you were saying that, um, to, to just give an instruction or an insight um, took me back to your your talks about Buber and thoughts about the I-it relationship. Right, like exactly. there is, the other becomes an object when you're instructing or when you're yeah. you know, offering an insight, you're doing that to them instead of with them. Right. Well, and, and so much therapy is, in, believe it or not, in that I-it thing where we're categorizing, telling, making sense, putting this together, that together. Mm -hmm. And, and <clears throat> the change, and, and, some, and most of life is lived in that way. The mind is the, the dominant one, right? But mm -hmm. therapy should be a challenge to the dominant uh, mm. feature of one's well-being because it is that rare place where affect gets to dominate and we run away then from or get away from always itting everything uh, stating everything knowing everything and get to what what is troublesome to us through mm. what what we're feeling mm. um, and so yeah I was going to say something else about that but lost it Hmm. Maybe it'll come back. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Well, I'm finding my mind kind of wandering into even this weekend and why I'm in Seattle. And we're here for a planning meeting for the RFPT program. Um, and I'm thinking about your book. And like you wrote the book two years ago mm -hmm. about. Um, and then this RFPT program was kind of born out of out right. of that. Right. Um, and so I'm wondering if you can talk about the why behind the book and the why behind the program. Yeah. Well, I had the fortune after the book was published to um, do a tour uh, and met with uh, post, you know, people who were out practicing. And two things happened. One was um, there was a lot of excitement and enthusiasm of, um, of this work. And also, like, the challenge of the work. Like, most, a lot of people are saying, they're five plus years out, how their work had really stalled, that it wasn't that life-giving, that they felt uh, they didn't know where to go for continuing education. Um, and they were uh, challenged and innovated with what I was bringing about how, how we work with affect, how mm -hmm. we work with experience, how the unconscious comes alive. So they were, there was a lot of excitement about that. And uh, a, a reporting out of a lack of um, continuing ed opportunities for them. And the other was 
uh, then several people wanted to know if I would supervise them remotely and that sort of thing. Mm. So what came to me was, well, how do I how do I address that need that I saw from these um, seminars? And I got to thinking about doing this, like, uh, do, why, don't we, why don't I create a program that has a couple of retreats a year that allows people to come together, get the uh, theoretical constructs behind it, have a deep experience of how this work is practiced, and then have um, uh, twice a month online supervision so that people could participate across the, the country. And then I thought, but, and why don't, I can't do that all by myself, and why don't I, anyway, create a whole another group of people to train them in order to, to become the supervisors mm. and uh, consultants for, for the program, and I would be the, the resource behind all of this and, and uh, person developing the curriculum and the literature and that sort of thing around it. And so you and Clarissa and Krista were tapped mm to come on to this idea. And I would say I've been working you pretty hard. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would agree with that. <laughs> and uh, I felt really gratified when we launched it last fall and uh, the first cohort felt really prepared for, that we had worked really hard and they felt like they had been thought of for a long time. Mm. And that the program now in its first year has continued with a pretty high satisfaction rate hmm. of um, learning to do this very, very unique, I would say, and difficult, uh, mm -hmm. but ch uh, excite or challenging and exciting modality. Yeah. Yeah. What would you add to it? Well, I, I mean, for me personally, I would say that the work has been really enlivening. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my first two years out of grad school, I remember leaving grad school and having just this ideal in my mind of what therapy was going to be like and sort of leaving the bubble of the Seattle school and, you know, the, the sort of built in community that's around that. And everybody had sort of this shared language and this shared way of connecting, which had a depth to it mm -hmm. and a richness mm -hmm. to it. Uh, and then to move, you know, I spent a some time in Asheville, North Carolina, and then eventually moved back to Grand Rapids, Michigan, where I'm originally from. Um, and for the first couple of years outside of grad school, I was, when I was still in Seattle, I was working at a psych hospital. Um, and so I wasn't really doing much individual therapy, uh, if at all, really. I was doing more like case management and discharge planning and that sort of thing. And then while we were in North Carolina, I was working in community mental health and um, really pretty exclusively case management there too. I had maybe like one or two therapy clients, um, but most of it was like driving around the mountains of Western North Carolina and visiting people in their homes. And um, it was folks that would uh, normally maybe be high, have a high need for hospitalization. And so this program was developed to be a bit of a wraparound service for that. Um, and so you know, making sure that they were filling their pillboxes correctly, or if they needed a ride to the pharmacy to pick up their prescriptions, we would do that. Or if they needed milk and eggs, you know, we would go to the, give them a ride to the store so they could do that. And so it wasn't, it wasn't really what I felt like I was trained to do or what I really wanted to do. Um, it was 
really eye-opening and a, an extremely valuable experience for me in one way. But um, I remember moving to Michigan and getting hired on at a counseling agency where I had an office and the clients who were there would come every week. And <laughs> I was like, this is my dream. This is what I've been waiting for. You know, this is like three or four years out from grad school and I'm, I'm finally getting to do the work that I wanted to do. And I remember the first two years of that being extremely disorienting for me, um, where I would have session after session end, and I would be like, what the hell just happened? Um, I don't know that I would pay somebody to do what I just did. Um, and so it, 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 got, it created quite a bit of anxiety in me, to be honest, um, around like, should I be a therapist? Do I even know what I'm doing? Um, you know, I just felt like I lost my way in some way. Like, it, this isn't how it was supposed to be. Like, right, right. it was supposed to be something different. Um, it was supposed to be much more powerful and transformative and all these things. Uh, and it just wasn't. It was just ordinary. Um, and so a ton of self-doubt crept in for me. Um, and I, you know, I sought out some, you know, I guess some counsel from um, another former professor, Kirk, who you know, um, and because I got to know him pretty well in North Carolina when I lived there. And uh, I remembered calling him like two years in and like, Kirk, I, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I have all this stuff happening. I'm a mess. Like, I don't think I'm cut out for this work. And I remember him just kind of not chuckling, but almost and just saying, oh, yeah, that's normal. I've, I've been doing this for like 25 years and I still often don't know what I'm doing. And he's like, and that's kind of part of it, um, that you have to kind of just keep showing up and these people are continuing to come back. And so something's happening. And um, over time, you you just have more of a tolerance for the, the unknown in a way. Um, and it kind of like re-energized me around working in that relational way because another thing that I did when I was scrambling and just feeling like I don't know what I'm doing is I tried to double down on other techniques and trainings mm -hmm. and um, I needed to find a tool that would help me you know I, I really moved away from myself and towards other models or towards something that would would really I think buffer my own ego sure. to help me feel like I'm doing something productive or helpful um, but then after that conversation with Kirk, and that didn't work, by the way, but after that conversation with Kirk, um, I felt like I settled a little bit and was like, okay, like I, I do believe in this way of working and I do believe in um, working relationally. And so uh, I kind of continued to deep dive into that in terms of what I was reading and things like that and, um, and just trying to show up as fully as I could. Um, but even with that, like things improved and I felt a lot better and I had had some clients who had been with me for a couple of years and I was able to see more of the arc of the therapy versus when I'm new and every all my clients are new we're all at the beginning mm -hmm. and so to kind of get a couple of years in and see what happens relationally over the over the course of a couple of years kind of rejuvenated that in me of like this is powerful and things are happening um, but I think even in that I hit a bit of a, a plateau where I was doing more affirming and more trying to just be empathic and really working hard to listen to like, what was the original wound and how do I be the opposite of that? Mm -hmm. um, and I think what I've learned from you over the past couple of years is like 
to you you need to kind of let yourself get into the repetition maybe even as the perpetrator role in a way where Mm -hmm. you're getting you're getting invited into this relational pattern that's hasn't worked for them and the only way that that's going to be healed is if you let yourself go into that pattern be confused by it get lost in it and then start to find your way in it not through my own insight but through our relational insight as it emerges and and we start to to sink into it so um so i feel i feel really like a renewed passion Mm. for the work a renewed Mm. um sense of depth and what's possible and um you know i'm fascinated by the unconscious Mm -hmm. and and how it how it works in spite of our ego and works Mm -hmm. in spite of our best efforts to change our behavior and um, you know, it's a bit of a trickster in that way. Yeah, like and it's relentless. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and I, I think I've just been able to, I mean, I, I wouldn't say I'm doing this perfectly all the time and sometimes not even well, but like sink into it a little more, yeah. um, and let myself get a little more messy with it. And, yeah. um, and, and to see that through the relationship, it's, it's like one of the portals that the unconscious can become known. Exactly. Um, you know, there aren't many ways that the unconscious really reveals itself. Like I think somewhat through dreams and, mm-hmm. um, certainly, but certainly through relationship yeah. and, but it's, <laughs> it's been very disruptive at times to do this work. And yeah. it's like a new level of disorientation. Mm-hmm. You know, like you said, what do I need to forget as a therapist or what do I need right. to let go of in right. terms of what I'm doing? Um, and, and because what the thing I'm doing is inhibit inhibiting what I how I'm being Um, so yeah I think that's that's part of what I would say about that yeah that's great the thing that I just want to add or not add to that but comment on is that there is that piece that you were you were getting at that where this has taken you to the next level is the idea of um, change is both resonance and dissonance See, and, and when we're listening to a story and being supportive of the story and affirming of the story, uh, we're trying to stay with resonance. Mm-hmm. But the unconscious, as you're saying, is saying, there's a whole, a whole other side to this, folks. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to push and get you into it. I want you to see my other parts of me. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that's where we are, we as therapists are usually quite defended against. And yet... Um, in my research, what I uh, discovered is that um, change is taking place through the conflict of both resonance and dissonance. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that, um, that I'll also comment on that, I see therapy as one big misread. Hmm. Um, and that I'm, I can never read you, Brian Nixon, the way you can read yourself. So no, whatever I bring to you, I don't ever think of it that I'm reading it right. Hmm. But I'm willing to be in the book with you. And I'm giving you a really good, the best I can, I should say, read that I have of you so that you and I then can do the writing together uh, of um, of what, what the story is being desired kind hmm. of thing. And if you think about that, two people trying to write your book holy shit, there's going to be problems, right? <laughs> Absolutely. You're going to say, what? And I, but I, when I talk about we have to stay in it, is 
I might have, have the read of you wrong. And, and if you just say, no, I don't want that, I have to say, you have to work with that me a little bit more because we're working this together. And I came up with that idea, not just out of nowhere. I came at it through my experience with you. Mm-hmm. And so we need to stay in this and make the edit, if you will, mm-hmm. together. And you might get to the conclusion that it, it was more your experience and not accurate for them, but there's something about working that through yeah. with the client versus just, you know, shutting it down because they didn't agree. Right. That it's not it's not about the rightness or the wrongness of what you're offering. It's about what are we going to do with it. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Yeah, and how do we how do we get into this story really good, and make it make it alive? Mm-hmm. Um, because that's what therapy is trying to do. Yeah, and I'm thinking too, like if if you bring your experience to the client, like it's possible that that you are enacting a role in their life in that moment. Yes, and that role might be a repetition of something that was wounding before. And so it becomes really rich to see like, how will we work with this together? Not just to resolve it, but to see what comes up out of that. Like they're, um, you know, like if they're just going to take it from you and be like, okay, and I agree. Or like, nope, I don't want any of that. Like you're playing a role and they're playing a role and something in that mixture is a, is a repetition of, their past right and your past right and it's all in this new sort of just messy space in the middle but through you know hanging out in that together and not just like you've used the word foreclosing right like not just foreclosing on oh i guess that was the wrong experience or the wrong impression of you um something in the working it through makes the unconscious conscious absolutely and I think, um, but I would I would oh. also say like, why is that healing when the unconscious becomes conscious? Usually, because what's uh, in the unconscious is repressed aspects of ourselves that have been harmful, and so when it can be spoken about and worked out, it becomes uh, a, a more healing experience. Mm-hmm. And and what I why I'm so that's that answer to that. Okay, but why I'm. Uh, <laughs> It's going more healing experience is the idea of resolution and resolve and rupture and repair. I want us to be really careful about that because yes, bringing the unconscious conscious is a is a, I'll, I'll ask it this way first and then I'll answer no. Is it <laughs> is it a resolution? Yes, but I want our work to be more than that, an expansion. Okay, like it opens up more when something isn't repressed and holding you back it's not oh I got that figured out it's like oh now what Hmm. you know there there, it becomes that's that wholly alive idea Um, and it's the same thing with rupture and repair Uh, it's always lovely when there's been a problem when we can make up and and be fine Mm -hmm. so that's a repair right however we're probably never repaired because whatever happened is going to always now be with us Hmm. but it's so what how can we see rupture as this opportunity for something more hmm. instead of fixing something? Right. And therapy to me isn't about fixing, but it's about expanding. Hmm. And, and, I love that. And in creating for an, helping a person have a more creative imagination about their life and an enthusiasm about making life happen. And I'd say it somewhere, I don't know where, but that uh, I hope that I never figure my life out. Hmm. It would be so awful to be fixed and 
and you know some days I want to be but <laughs> but I love I, I, I loved as I said it as we began as a child I was so damn curious mm-hmm. well there's something that happens in my life every day that if I was always trying to fix it rather than imagine about it mm-hmm. it'd be absolutely a terrible life mm-hmm. so I pray to God to never be fixed sort of <laughs> yeah because it's an illusion it is an illusion yeah but I want to be engaged and involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much life and vitality in the messiness and in the mystery Absolutely. and in, in the sort of ever evolving unfolding of life. Yes. And I think that idea of not wanting to be fixed, like what I hear in that is like, if you're fixed, then you've kind of closed the book and decided like, Here, this is it. I'm, yeah. I'm done. Right. I don't need to do any more. I don't need to go any further. I don't need to yeah. explore anymore. Right. Um, and it does it does lose some vitality. Yeah. And that idea of like rupture and repair, like the way that that's often talked about is like there's one rupture and yep. one repair, right. and then that one's done. Exactly. Um, but I again think, like from part of the work with you, has mm-hmm. been like that rupture is still playing itself out. Sure it like is. Like you closed the book on that, but it's not done, no. and it's still in the relationship. Yeah. And and it's now a part of our relationship. So why do we have to say it's finished? Mm-hmm. Why why can't we continue to learn from it? Yeah. You know? Yeah, and something about the the idea of rupture too feels like like what's being ruptured. Mm. You know, like yeah. there's a there's this maybe this small tight container that's holding everything in and no spaciousness, a lot of maybe rigidity. It's all contained. Right. And something about like rupturing that lets everything that's in there out and has more space. Right. Um, and so I, I think that's sort of a new thought to me in this moment. But yeah. um, the idea of a rupture can create space. Absolutely. And the thing about the way we have constructed therapy, I think, in our culture is to think of therapy as safe place, a place where all will be well, where everything will be taken mm-hmm. care of. And that's just not life and, and not real. Like... Mm-hmm. There's no way that I can have a therapeutic relationship without conflict and without rupture. Hmm. And uh, and if I do, then I would say I've not helped my patient. Hmm. That without conflict, there's no therapy. Hmm. Yeah, that's not a popular message. No. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's right, though. I think it's right. Yeah. Hmm. Well feels like a good place for us to to pause for now yeah well thank you for having this chat yeah thanks for coming on all right thanks for tuning into my conversation with dr roy barsness and i hope as a result you will take some time to think about some of the more significant relational moments in your own life and consider what it means for you personally that we are formed in relationship we are harmed in relationship and we are healed in relationship take care